Hello, welcome to Grumpy Strategist episode five. I'm Michael Shoebridge and I'm joined by my Strategic Analysis Australia colleague, Marcus Hellier. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Michael. It's, again, great to be here. Hello to our listeners. But I have to say it's a rather sombre episode after the recent events that are still ongoing in Israel and Palestine. Yes, well, I think that's really going to be the start of the podcast. We'll talk about the Israel-Hamas war. I think that leads us on to talk a bit about what this new world is that we're entering, the beginnings of what people have talked about, a multipolar world, but is it an order or is it a disorder? And then we might try and end with some reasonably happy news, uh, which is the release of Cheng Lei after three years in horrible detention in China. So with that, Marcus, the the Hamas attacks that started on Saturday look to have uh, murdered over a thousand, not just Israelis, but Europeans, Thais, Americans, one Australian grandmother. The footage is horrific, but it's something that people failed to imagine could happen. What, what do you think are some of the insights from mm. this attack? Well, I'll start by just saying, so the satirical website, The Shovel ran a piece titled 75-Year Israel-Palestine Conflict Solved in Three Minutes by Guy on Twitter. And I have to say, I feel a bit like the guy on Twitter dealing with these issues which have been going for decades are very complex. And, you know, at some level, you you reach the place where sort of language fails, our intellectual Mm. concepts fail when you are you know faced with this this brutality this violence essentially for its own sake but also you have to acknowledge the long-standing context you know and the, the i think the real failures by successive Israeli governments and we have to be able to say that without in any way condoning what Hamas has done and it's just very hard to have these conversations without just uh, collapsing into sort of name calling and yes very very hard topics uh, to deal with so you know I think up front both of us would would say that what Hamas has done is indescribably horrific but simply making that acknowledgement doesn't help solve this conflict in in any way, shape, or form, and I don't think you know either of us can. So I mm. think, yes, rather than dwelling on that, perhaps yes, we can talk about some, some of the broader issues of relevance to Australia as we sort of look at at the world. And as you said, what does this say about the world order? So we we move from a kind of bipolar world order of the the Cold War and some of the the dangers, but also the certainties in a sense, the rules of the Cold War to this vanishingly short period that was meant to be the end of history, but essentially it was a vanishingly short unipolar moment of US power or global hegemony, which even itself had clear limitations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're moving into something beyond which people have described as this you know, emerging multipolar order. And some people see it as a, as a positive. If you're a, not a fan of US power, it's sort of been described as a good thing that will allow more people, more countries to participate as equals in the world system. And But there's also the view that, well, it's actually we're moving into this era of almost chaos, the, the yes. realists kind of nihilistic anarchism. Well, I think it's, it's very easy to say a new multipolar order, but this is a much nastier, nastier more fragmented, more dangerous world than that. So I, I think 
It's not an order of any kind, it's a disorder. You can't look at the failures of deterrence in Ukraine. Putin was faced with enormous horrible consequences if he attacked Ukraine. He did it anyway. And in Israel now, Hamas knew they would face enormous consequences. In fact, the Palestinian people they say they represent were going to suffer inordinately more than even the Hamas leaders and organisation. So both of these actors knew about the high level of deterrence in place, and they did it anyway. And you could say that's a symptom of the breakdown of the international order. So everybody cheering the relative reduction in US power and influence, and in fact the reduction in the influence and effectiveness of UN and other international organisations, should start to look at some of these consequences and outcomes. And I think there's a whole lot of self-questioning that needs to go on with some very lazy thinking from people that cheer about the reduction in UN and Western power when we start to see these real-life consequences for the lives and well-being of so many people around the world. Mm. Well, I, I guess what I'm struck by again here is that there's no compromise here or, or that when attempts at compromise are made, it's very easy to, to derail a compromise. I mean, the, the last thing that Hamas wants is is a compromise. And so it's very easy to derail that. And we've seen that again and again and again with in Israeli-Palestinian relations. And I think what was, if, if we look at the Middle East and power politics in the Middle East, we were seeing the emergence of a sort of new kind of coalition in a sense. So the, the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, of a normalization of Saudi and Israeli relations, which following the one between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Egypt. Mm. Yep. Now, obviously, the, the Saudis, you can, you know, don't have to be a huge fan of the Saudis for, for many reasons. And they were clearly seeking normalisation with Israel for their own means, you know, as essentially a counter to Iran in the region. But where that was heading was a new kind of compromise, in a, in a sense. And it offered some, I think, kind of glimmers of hope for broader Israeli-Arab relations. But again, that's the last thing that Hamas wants. And so what they want is to put the Palestinian issue back on the front page and to put Hamas back on the front page. So they're essentially derailing that process. So in, in our very sort of still globalised world, it's very there's a, there is a kind of democratisation of, of power and influence that relatively small actors like Hamas can have this, this impact, this broad mm. global kind of impact, just derailing sort of regional development months but derailing sort of global uh, developments as well yeah although i wonder really were the hamas leaders really that strategic and insightful about what they've done i think it's in the nature of terrorist organizations to commit acts of terror that's what they exist to do and at the top of their mind was we have an opportunity to commit a mass act of terror let's do that and, you know, related to your point about ending any kind of peace and establishment of diplomatic relations between the Saudis and Israel, yes, that, that was indeed a goal. And reigniting the passion on the Arab street uh, for the Palestinian cause. But I think 
thinking a little further ahead, this isn't going to be a lasting move by Hamas because Hamas and Hezbollah are both Iranian proxies. This is just an indicator of the threat that these proxies and Iran pose to countries like Saudi Arabia and the leaders of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. So the bigger strategic effect is to tell the leaders of Middle Eastern countries that Iran and its proxies are an even graver threat than they had previously thought. And if Israel does dominate Gaza militarily and wreak havoc on Hamas, it comes out of this as a stronger military and strategic part. So it could actually have the opposite consequence for Hamas in the longer term. Oh, I, I agree with that entirely. But as, as a the logic of terrorist organisations is to be seen. If you're a terrorist organisation and nobody notices you, well, it's like a tree falling in the forest. So there is mm. that dynamic to constantly create one more horrific act after the other. Yes, so. because you have to. The last mm. thing you want to do if you're the Hamas terrorist organisation is run a peaceful government because that's not why you joined the, the out. You joined it to commit acts of terror. So, but another thing that struck me in, in some of the analysis, and you write about snappy Twitter summaries telling everybody war and peace in, in 150 characters, but there's already a rising tide of people saying, well, this is a, an intelligence failure. And the problem is intelligence agencies in Israel are meant to be world-class and they drop the ball and that's why this happened. I think it's a different thing. I think it's a very easy path to say, where was the magic piece of intelligence telling me this was going to happen that I could pay attention to? Remember George W. Bush and 9-11? The whole deep 9-11 commission into the attacks on the World Trade Center found lots of isolated bits of information in various intelligence agencies' databases and a few reports saying, well, is Al-Qaeda seeking to attack the US? No actual definitive piece of information, but in glorious hindsight, there was a bunny trail leading to, well, this, this was likely to happen. It wasn't really, in my mind an intelligence failure. It was an imagination mm -hmm. failure that terrorists could use planes to fly into mm -hmm. large office buildings. And we now have a response where there are armoured cockpits and a whole lot of detection facilities at airports. So this attack, I think, is a failure of imagination. It's not down to some intelligence analyst in the in the bowels of, of an Israeli agency, a Mossad or somewhere. This is a failure of imagination by the political and military leadership to not understand that maybe Hamas hadn't given up their goal of mass murder and, and actually ending the state of Israel. And maybe they were learning lessons from how the Ukrainians are fighting in Ukraine. Again, I would agree with that. I think it does get at this kind of issue of democratisation, not just of technology, but democratisation of of messaging, in a sense, because of the globalised media. But on, on that issue of the failure of imagination, it is really interesting to, to look at how Hamas carried out this attack. And so if you're willing to, to suffer loss, have many of your own people killed, if you're willing to be completely brutal and not be discriminating in your targeting, though actually I, I don't like the word Hamas acted shot indiscriminately because to them every Israeli is a legitimate target. Well, it turns out Thais and Europeans and Americans and yeah. an Australian grandmother were also on that list. Yeah. So I, I do think it was indiscriminate and horrific. But anybody is a target for them, yep. essentially. But so if, if you're willing to do that, to not be precise in your targeting, not have any rules of engagement in your targeting, if you're willing to suffer lots of casualties on your side, you can still achieve a lot with 
in in very low tech ways. And I think that's maybe a, the the mm. failure of imagination that you're talking about. Yes, that yeah. we sort of advanced Western countries still sort of rely on technology, and every time look at discussions around what equipment we should buy and AUKUS. It's, it's all about technology. And yet, at some level, the technology becomes irrelevant when you're dealing with adversaries who uh, are willing to to use very low-tech means to, to leverage the mass they have, which is people, and take advantage of the, the fact that we don't like suffering human casualties and every mm. single human casualty has a big cost for us. And, you know, there, there is an asymmetry. Again, we keep talking about we need asymmetric capabilities. Well, that is an, an asymmetric capability that organisations like Hamas are willing to suffer many, many, many casualties to impose many casualties because that's a, a very high cost for us. Well, I think another thing to really think hard about if you're a country like Australia with a tiny defence force and we're not going to have a mass population in our defence force, we're finding it hard to even keep the thing at current numbers and grow it in a tiny way over a very long period of time. Another way to think is how does asymmetry help us when looking at a larger military challenge like China. And I'm not suggesting for a second that Australia is going to engage in a conflict with China by ourselves. But if there were a war with China and we were part of a collective effort to stop them dominating the region, then we would need to think asymmetrically. And there are some lessons, aren't there, out of the Taliban and IEDs in Afghanistan and the Ukrainians with the small, the cheap and the many, armed and unarmed drones, and losing 10,000 a week, but getting more success out of it, destroying large Russian submarines, for example. And now out of Hamas, they use bulldozers and motorbikes and people with automatic weapons, but they disabled Israel's high-tech surveillance apparatus by dropping grenades from commercial drones onto watchtowers that were heavily protected with layers of concrete, the big concrete tubes, but open at the top because but, but dropping there grenades was that failure of, of imagination. Drones. That's been going on for 10 years now. ISIS was doing it in the Middle East. Both sides are doing it in Ukraine. So these are very well-established techniques. But I guess the concept of deterrence is really sort of built into our thinking now and, and our partners' thinking. So you, you look at the, the US's national defence strategy called integrated deterrence. You, know, you look at the defence strategic review that came out here a few months ago. It's all built around that concept of deterrence by denial. And so this idea of deterrence is fundamental to the way we're thinking. And yet you go, well, deterrence only works... A, if you understand the, the adversary's sort of cost-benefit calculus. What will deter them? If deterrence is, well, we're going to impose so much cost on them if they act that they're not going to do it. Well, that implies you understand their calculus. So we have to be talking a sort of similar kind of language, and I'm not sure that's possible with Hamas, but it, we, it sort of implies we understand the Chinese Communist Party's cost-benefit analysis. When we, you talk about the failure of deterrence in Ukraine, there was an assumption there, well, we sort of understood Putin's kind of cost-benefit analysis and, and clearly we didn't. So it's not really a failure of deterrence because in some ways we weren't even trying to deter Putin because we're sort of just talking past each other there. So I guess we just, I think, to be very careful about this concept of deterrence because it really only works if we, we are sort of talking the same language and can properly understand the adversary's cost I calculus. I, I think you've got to understand what costs they think are important. And in the case of Putin and Ukraine, 
and Hamas and Israel, the costs that we would think were unacceptable, they thought were entirely acceptable. And maybe they didn't understand all the consequences of their act, but their calculation at the time was, all this stuff you're telling me are reasons not to do it, don't matter to me. The other big thing I think about this whole way that Australians talk about deterrence and maybe less so Americans, um, who I think are at heart are more warlike people than Australians. When when I hear Australian officials, military and civilian and, and our ministers and prime minister talk about deterrence, it's always about deterrence means there will no will be no war. And so there's an assumption that it's going to work. But I think behind that, there's an unreality about if war did happen, would any of these plans actually enable us to succeed in stopping an adversary? If there is a collective war involving fighting against China and its People's Liberation Army, have we really got the means to participate in that and help succeed in conflict against China with our allies and partners? Because it gets to this, is there any real urgency or any real change in what Australia is doing, despite the words. I think this whole concept of deterrence is like a get-out-of-jail-free card for people that then have an unreality about being able to do any of the things they talk about planning and doing. Again, I agree, Michael, that there's this assumption that if, if we can get inside their head and understand their cost-benefit calculus. If we have enough capability, we'll reach that tipping point where they'll go, oh, I'll suffer too many losses. I'm I'm not going to do it. Well, we don't have a very good track record of actually doing that very well, of understanding their thinking. So they they go and start the, the war or whatever it is. Anyway, so are we trying to have enough just to kind of reach that tipping point where we think it they'll go, oh, too expensive, or actually, are we having enough capability so once they do start, we can physically stop them? Well, yeah, and, I'm, and, saying, I'm saying, do we really have workable plans and means of doing the things that all the words in documents like the Defence Strategic Review and the Force Structure Update say? And I don't think the meat has been put on the ideas because I think there's a suspension of reality about the prospect of having to actually engage in conflict and the words around deterrence all help that because the end point is never that deterrence fails. And yet what we see in our world whether it's Ukraine, Israel, or even around Second Thomas Shoal and Scarborough Shoal in the South China Sea, is deterrence is failing. Well, I, I think there's, if I may unpack, there's a couple of separate issues here. And one is, for many people, their calculus is so different from ours that what we would think would be an adequate de- deterrence just isn't going to work because they are willing to suffer so much cost to achieve their aims. So... And I think we always get that calculus wrong. The other point I think you're trying to make there, Michael, is, is, is a very basic one, which is we have all these words in strategic documents, but do they actually really translate into capability? Mm. And again, I think the answer there is no, because you look at our 2016 white paper, a lot of the words in there haven't actually now translated into capability. If we go even further back to the 2009 white paper, the words around capability there have not translated into actual capability. And we've talked about the DSR, and I think our initial feelings there is we're not on the right track to translate the words there into actual capability. So, Well, look, we could probably talk about other 
angles around that for a long time. I suppose let's end on at least an individually very happy note, which is the fact that Chen Lei, the Australian journalist who had worked with China's national uh, state broadcaster, after three years in horrible imprisonment in China, has returned home to Australia and is able to do what she wrote about from prison, which is be in the sunlight and be with her young children. Yes, and it is a small glimmer of good news there, but it does, I think, again, put the spotlight on one of the established practices of the Chinese Communist Party, which is to use hostage diplomacy, to use innocent individuals as bargaining chips. And it remains to be seen, is there was there an explicit deal to release her? Probably not, but I think there is a kind of implicit deal there that this is a sweetener from Beijing to make sure that Prime Minister Albanese does in fact come to Beijing. Mm, yes, well, I... I think there's that. I am really, I I want to celebrate her return and her reunion with her children and her ability to live in freedom here in Australia. But I think we have to see it for what it is out of Beijing. Uh, They abducted her and imprisoned her to use her as leverage in the China-Australia relationship. And they've decided that now is the time to, to pull that lever, to use the pawn that they generated in the relationship. And why is that? Well, I think there's the one about they knew it was an obstacle for Prime Minister Albanese to go to Beijing, while Cheng Lei and Yang Henjun, the author who has been detained for even longer, it was over three years ago that he was detained and he now has a serious kidney illness that's not getting proper treatment. He's still held by Beijing as another pawn, another hostage as leverage. But the reason was, yes, it was an obstacle to the Prime Minister's visit. It lets the current government celebrate their constructive management of the relationship with China. But it also lets Xi Jinping say, look, my relationship with the EU and with countries in the EU, Germany, for example, and France, is in real trouble. My relationship with the US is getting worse all the time as more controls on our economic relationship get put in place. I'm busily pushing the Filipinos around. But my good friend from Australia, Prime Minister Albanese, is happy to shake my hand and smile. So this just shows that any kind of unity in policy towards China isn't true. It lets him drive a wedge in that way. And it also lets him reward the current Australian government for their silence on all of the acts of aggression and intimidation we're seeing out of Beijing. So I think it's a great piece of leverage out of Beijing. And we'll see, are Australians shallow enough to not look through that? Well, I think there's a slight irony here in that it almost puts us in the same camp as Prime Minister Sogavare of the Solomon Islands, where we're the kind of people who are willing to deal with, with Beijing. So. Well, it says we want to do business. And the, the funny thing about that is I'm already hearing some of the business lobby uh, here in Australia celebrate the uh, return of Cheng Lei as showing that we can get back to business with China and they're hopeful of selling wine and lobsters and lots of other things to China. Right at the time when the EU, the Group of Seven Nations, The U.S. are all trying to reduce their economic dependence on China. So in that way, again, all this theatre and creating this relationship at a leader and minister level between Australia and China 
is putting Australia on a different path to pretty much every partner and ally whose values we share. But let's end it by celebrating the fact that a mother has been reunited with her young children and also celebrate the fact she'll be living in freedom here in Australia. Thank you again, Marcus. Thank you, Michael.